Hi, and welcome to the Food Navigator podcast, your deep dive into the big trends shaping the food and beverage industry. I'm Food Navigator journalist Oliver Morrison. Nutritionists have been encouraging us to eat more fruit, veg and whole grains for decades, but this approach has failed to tackle issues like obesity. Reformulation is therefore seen as key to securing a healthier and more sustainable future for food. Food Navigator's recent Positive Nutrition Summit, a face-to-face event held in London in March, examined, among other things, how public health challenges can be met through technical advances and ingredient innovation. The topic of HFSS products, those high in fat, salt and sugar, is a particularly hot one in the UK, where the government has just introduced new location restrictions of these product categories. But there are similar rules in other parts of Europe. One panel discussion at the event discussed how innovative new R&D strategies and ingredient solutions are unlocking opportunities to cut salt, fat or sugar without sacrificing taste, and asked how far can these emerging technologies drive HFSS reduction. Here's a full replay of the conversation with your moderator, Food Navigator's Deputy Editor, Flora Southey. All right, well, we've heard a lot about HFSS already, but really interesting to hear that it's just the UK that calls it that, and actually maybe we should have called this panel junk food or (laughs) something like that. so HFSS and, and junk food, we've, it's really been in the media a lot. Um, it's obviously a huge concern from a public health perspective, but also we're seeing you know, more and more regulations, and we've just heard that from, from Katia. So um, that's happening here in the UK, but as she mentioned, it's also happening elsewhere in Europe. So really keen to have these panellists together to, to chat about reformulating HFSS and how that can be done without, without sacrifice. So um, I'll just quickly introduce, introduce the speakers and then we'll get stuck into the conversation. Um, so I'll start on, on the other end. We've got Kathy Mosley, who's CEO of Boundless Activated Snacking. And then we've got Sakib Ramde, VP, Head of Category Development Europe at Tate & Lau. Then we have Susan Gafson, founder and director of Pep & Lecker. And next to me, we have another Flora, Flora Zorlinski, Senior Insight Manager from Luminary Intelligence. So um, basically, I'd, I'd like to know how products can be reformulated without impacting taste. We have two snack brands on the company on the on the panel. So perhaps I'll start with you, um, Kathy. I'll start with you. I'd like to know from your perspective how you're approaching HFSS and how you're developing snacks that can be compliant. Well, I suppose I'm going to be a little bit controversial here, and um, the fact that I'm really super proud that I don't need to reformulate what we make because I make snacks that are good for you from get-go and the fact that therefore I don't need to put additives or change anything different to what's already been formulated. So I think obviously there are things that people can do, of course, in terms of kind of like changing honey to maple syrup or things like this that will obviously help and assist. But personally, I think that we should be developing products from get-go that are actually good for us in a much more whole grain kind of you know, real food for real people. And I think that, from my point of view, is where we should be looking at not just the fact that HFSS are making big conglomerates change their attitude to snacks, but the fact that the real snacks should be made from get-go being far better for us. So how do you approach the organoleptic profile, the, the taste, the texture, without added salt and 
Well, okay, so um, again, I feel super proud in saying this. So we are the first small brand that have been introduced into a multiple, into mainstream snacking category. So we're now in Asda and we sit alongside like the likes of, you know, Walkers or, you know, as Mr. PepsiCo sitting over there. Thank you very much. And um, you know, the likes of kind of um, pop chips or proper, proper chips and stuff like that, and kettle chips. And um, it does take innovation, and that's one of the greatest things about being a startup. We are there to challenge the status quo, and we are there to change what is already currently on the shelf. And I think the fact is, it you know, taking good, solid ingredients and putting you know ingredients down that are listed that the consumer can actually understand that doesn't have a multiple of something against it, I think is really is is a really good opportunity currently. But I think that there are, I think it takes longer. I think you may have to be honest that your profit isn't going to be as great as because you're going to need to think about using ingredients that don't just have the longest shelf life forever. But I think, you know, this is, this is now the consumer demand. And, and I think it's great. And I think snacking has a really fantastic, healthy future in front of it. And I'm really super pleased to be a part of it. But it just takes thinking outside of the box rather than just accepting the status quo. Susan, I'd love to bring you into the discussion. I think you might agree with, with many of the points that Cathy's made, but I'd, I'd be keen to hear you as an HFSS compliant brand as well. Yeah, so like Cathy, um, I came up with the idea for the snack because my son had become vegan and he was eating really badly. And I started to read back of packs and saw that I didn't understand half of the food that I was eating and thought was healthy. Um, so I actually devised the snack myself using 14 all-natural kitchen cupboard ingredients. So like Kathy, my snack was automatically HFSS compliant, so I didn't have to do anything to make it compliant. Um, and But like Kathy, I can totally agree that the challenges that we've had um, is that we chose seeds uh, uh, to make it allergy free and because seeds are full of good nutrition um, and so it's like a uh, combination of a biscuit and a cracker so it's not a variation of a crisp so that has been challenging because it's something different it's also challenging that we don't add sugar uh, because we all have a propensity within our gut to want sugar, salt and fat. And so you have to re-educate yourself to not want sugar, salt and fat. Uh, so that's one of the problems that I have with the HFSS legislation is that I don't think it thinks about health. Um, and I think as a lawyer, um, it's quite depressing that it's based on very old thinking uh, because the original um, profile, I think, was devised in 2004. The first consultation paper was in 2010. And science has moved on so far now. So we know that fat isn't necessarily a bad thing. And there is such things as good fats. 
Um, so the legislation is good because there has to be something, but there's a lot more that can be done if we're really going to change what we mean about healthy food. Because I feel that HFSS compliant food, most of it isn't healthy. So, Kiva, I'd love to bring you in here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sandwiched between these two ladies here, so I need to be careful. Um, I think it's worth my, my starter by saying I don't disagree with anything that the panellists have said. Um, and it's fantastic to see their, the success of their brands. Um, we are in England, so I have to start by clarifying that we're not the sugar company, Tate Nile. We're the ingredient company, Tate Nile. Um, Many of you may know that over the last 15 years, we've been on a journey uh, divesting our sugar business, which we exited back in 2010, um, to becoming today you know, one of the world leaders in sugar reduction, in sweetening, in mouthfeel and, and fortification. Um, so we're very much putting ourselves as a business at the heart of a lot of what we're talking today to make uh, what we refer to as healthy food tastier and tasty food healthier. To kind of build on you know, what the panellists have said, I, I, you know, I don't disagree with starting from scratch and, and formulating bottom-up without the need of um, some of the kind of ingredient solutions that companies like ourselves provide. But we also know that consumers are creatures of habit, <laughs> are time poor, um, are faced with all sorts of challenges in their day-to-day, -day, not least, you know, screaming children when they're trekking around Tesco. Um, and everybody craves a treat. Everyone wants a moment of indulgence. And we all yearn for the familiarity of taste that we're used to. And Rakesh talked about it earlier as well. And so that's where we see ourselves playing a role in helping the major multinationals in taking their large mainstream brands and either silently or through claims and messaging, repositioning them um, to ultimately uh, allow consumers to make healthier choices and importantly have the choice, right? Because consumers will always want a bit of indulgence. But over time, if we can trend down that sweetness association, the salt association has been on a, a longer journey and we can train new habits, then, you know, hopefully in 10 years' time, we'll be showing statistics where we're saying that obesity and diabetes is declining rather than growing where we're, where, where we're seeing it today. So our approach is, you know, providing as much as we can ingredients that are familiar that are versatile, so typically are neutral in taste, they're easy to formulate, um, but also really understanding how they work synergistically together because, um, you know, there's no silver bullet that's going to solve all the problems. So having a toolbox that allows you to manage the bulk, that allows you to manage the texture, that allows you to run through different processes in a manufacturing plant, that allows you to... Um, uh, you know, deal with that challenge of sweetness um, is really the approach that we're taking as a business to approach this um, this big societal problem, actually, of obesity and diabetes. Thanks, Siki. It does sound like a big challenge, and you're right, there's no silver bullet. Flora, I wonder what you're seeing 
as that could be, you know, amongst the biggest challenges facing food and beverage makers looking to cut fat, well, salt and sugar? I think 100% being able to cut it, but still maintain that great taste, that great flavour, that great texture, um, and also being able to do it where you can create a product that's affordable for the consumers. As we saw earlier, it's value that's the number one thing that's most important to consumers. You can create this amazing product with all of these health benefits. But, you know, if it's sort of three pounds for a bar the size of a Kit Kat, the the appeal of that is going to be quite limited to those sort of affluent millennials I was talking about earlier. And I suppose with HFSS, the policy is really targeting those consumers that are overweight, that are obese. And very sadly, that seems to um, correlate more with those low-income families. And as again, we saw, it's those low-income families that really sort of deprioritize taste and uh, deprioritize health, and they're prioritizing taste and stuff. So HFSS policy won't work if it compromises the taste, the flavor, and the cost of the product. Um, and, and that's what the biggest challenge is probably going to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking a lot about this HFSS policy, and I think it's important to perhaps step back and ask whose responsibility it is to encourage reformulation for health. I'd like to ask this question to the panellists, but I'd also like to ask all the delegates here. So if we can put up the slide using Slido, you'll be able to to vote um, whether you believe it's the industry's responsibility because voluntary efforts are are sufficient, whether it's policymakers' responsibility because government action is really needed and it can also help to create a level playing field, um, whether it's both industry and policy makers' responsibility or whether whether it's neither. So I'd love to hear <laughs> both, <laughs> 100%. I'd love to hear your responses as well. Susan, whose responsibility is it? I think it's everybody's responsibility because, and, and sorry to fudge the, um, the question, but it's such a huge issue. Um, but I think that it has to be tackled from uh, multiple levers so the government clearly has a huge role to play um and um as do schools and education and i've seen within schools i'm working with a school where the headmistress herself has taken the initiative to introduce this program where the children are growing their own seeds and making their own food and they are loving it, enjoying it. They're really understanding where food comes from, what what real food means and um, they are influencing their parents to, to think about the food they buy. But... But the headmistress is having to reach out to companies to fund that. So the government's, so they're not getting any support and it's requiring the passion of the head teacher, which isn't going to happen within every school because they're under pressure. Um, But I do think that advertising has a huge role. I know that when my kids were growing up, my son saw this advert for Sunny Delight, which is showing how old I am. <laughs> and he drove me nuts. I've got to have Sunny. And I knew that it was just sugar. So I tried to... But you, your kids put on... So advertising has a huge role to play. So for, for the government to kick that into the long grass, 
until 2025, I think is very sad. Thanks for that. I want to make sure that today we're, also, we're talking about re reducing fat, salt and sugar, but we're also talking about reformulation and, and innovation as an, opportunity, as an opportunity to bring in those really great, good, healthy ingredients. Sakib, are you noticing that businesses are using HFSS as an opportunity to bring those good, healthy ingredients into their food formulation? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's definitely the case. Um, as for those of you who are familiar with the, the scoring system, you get positive points as well, which is where uh, products like fibres uh, can play a role in ultimately getting the score to where you need it to be as part of the overall matrix. I think the challenge ultimately comes down to price points as well, right, and taste. Because, you know, if, if you're trying to recreate that mainstream SKU that consumers are hugely familiar with, then adding additional things can change the value proposition. The challenge also is if you're adding a lot of those good ingredients, often they're expensive. And so how are you managing, how are you managing the formulation cost, the recipe cost, etc.? I mean, you know, we're working with a lot of chocolate companies to formulate soluble fibers in, into sugar-reduced chocolate, but clearly, you know, you're not going to make a, a health claim off of the back of that. So it, it's also kind of category-specific. I think tying the two questions together about whose responsibility it is and how we're getting some of the positives in, I think for us as an ingredient company, you know, the f first of all, it starts with everybody in the, in, the, in the value chain taking responsibility for what they're ultimately responsible for. But secondly, we're putting a huge effort now into how can we make these sorts of ingredients uh, in a more affordable way so that we can drive much more access um, to soluble fibers, to proteins, etc. Because otherwise, we're going to keep bump, you know, even if we deal with a taste problem, we're going to keep bumping up against a cost and use challenge. And we're not going to have the, the societal impact that we want to have. And in terms of NPD strategy, Kathy, how do you decide which good ingredients go into that food formulation? Well, um, for me, obviously, I think we've talked a little bit about sustainability here as well and obviously understanding your nutritional profile. So we started off, so as Boundless, we are gut mission driven. So everything we do, our USP is about your gut and making sure we get the nation gut happy, which if we've all got a gut, which we all do, you should be looking after it. So it's, probably, it's really essential. So we started off with nuts and seeds and uh, kind of let, getting people boosted in the morning with nuts and seeds and those things, so, which are actually fundamentally just whole, whole products that we can just take on and make them better by activating them and making them much more gut-friendly with full of fibre and nutrient-dense. And then for when we went into our chip range, which is what we've done with our MPD, which we've just done over the last year, um, I looked into like grains, extra grains like sorghum, and sorghum is an absolute powerhouse of a grain. It's um, it doesn't t 
doesn't take much water to grow it, which absolutely makes it really great for your carbon footprint and sustainability. But it's really packed heavily with lots and lots of nutrients. And companies have been using sorghum for years, but not really using it as a main ingredient. But what is really amazing about sorghum also is it'll absorb a lot of flavour. It'll take on a lot of um, what you're going to give it without having to like make it really heavily, like salted or sugared or any of that sort of stuff. And I convinced this from little old me, which when I think about like the big guys out there, I convinced one of the largest UK farmers to grow sorghum for us and to sprout it. Then I convinced one of the largest kind of millers in the UK to mill that grain for me. And then I found a big manufacturer who makes lots of snacks for other people to make it for little old boundless. And, um, and we did it, and, and it's great. And I think that, you know, there is lots of ability to... I think passion really is where lots of these, like, us as a startup and challenger brand is where we come from and why we're willing to step out of what the normal status quo was in order to kind of come up with new ideas because we're mission-led, and I think that is quite important you know, to want to check, to make a change. And I think when you're, when you're driven like that, we're not just commercially driven, but in all the sense of what we've been able to do at Boundless is we've made our snacks affordable and accessible because I think obviously we're just talking about, which is really important, price-driven. I'm really big about the fact that health shouldn't be a financial choice. It should be an informed choice, but it shouldn't have to be a choice out of pocket. And I think that there are abilities to make lots of great new products. You've just got to step away from the norm. And I think if small brands like ourselves can do it, then I definitely think the larger guys have much more opportunities to really turn around this, turn this all around for all of us. And focusing on, on you mentioned gut health promoting ingredients or... Um protein or, or fibre. I wonder whether, Flora, do you think that there should be perhaps a geographical focus on, on, on adding these, these good, healthy, positive nutrients into food products and perhaps selecting fibre in a country like the UK where there's a fibre gap or micronutrients in other countries that might be lacking? Mm. I think it would be... Um a good idea if you could get even more granular to that to even more kind of small countries and regions but I think practically it would be really quite difficult I think um a bigger thing is really educating uh consumers educating people on what healthy diets are and how to do that um affordably at low cost how you can use pulses and lentils and even cabbage these really low cost um ingredients and easily make these delicious meals with them and almost having a regionally targeted approach at where obesity are the biggest problems and, and where that is and, and focusing there. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I'd say. <laughs> We're seeing a real focus on affordability and, and price, which is super interesting. Susan, is that something that you're conscious of in, in Pep and Lecker and, um, you know, working, determining on the size of of scale is that a challenge in, in reducing Very. costs? Yeah. yeah. How do you approach that? Yeah. So um, I, it's very difficult. <laughs> um, and if I'd have come from a food and drink background, I don't think that I would have come up with the recipe that I did, <laughs> um, because um, particularly with the rising cost of ingredients <laughs> and the way that the food and drink industry is set up, it's all about 
economies of scale. So if you are doing, so if you are not producing in huge volumes, everything's more expensive. Packaging, ingredients, logistics, um, warehousing, everything. Um, so as a startup, it is very challenging. But by being passionate, I am looking at the long term and I'm evolving my recipe as we grow to try to get the right balance. Uh, so when we first started selling, we had even more fantastic ingredients, but we were uh, making them ourselves in markets. And, and then so there's been an evolution uh, to get to the stage where we will be more affordable because, as Cathy said, you know, that is the holy grail is to be able to give healthy choices to people. Um, but I do feel that there is also a journey to go on where we are not so reliant on sugar and salt and fat to make us happy because if we continue to just need sugar, fat and salt to make us happy, we won't solve this crisis. So, Keeb, for the consumers who are really interested in nutrition, they're going to be turning their packet of crisps or whatever beverage in the Wouldn't supermarket be crisps around. Wouldn't in nutrition. <laughs> around and looking at the ingredients list. So I'd like to bring the topic of, of clean label into this discussion. How important is this in, in terms of positive nutrition? Sometimes positive nutrition can mean slightly longer ingredients lists, for example. Is that, is that a concern? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a really important conversation and I wish somebody, when these things were invented 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago, had thought about naming conventions back then. But, you know, we're, we're stuck with a lot of things that have X's and, and relatively long uh, names associated with them. I think that the, the, the point is that it, it's not... Consumers don't want either or today, right? It, it's, it's and, right? So they want the better for you, but they also want the convenience. They also want the taste. They also want it to be familiar, they also want it to be more sustainable. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's the, and maybe it's not all of them at the same time, depending on the type of day or, or day of the week. But, but I think for ingredients companies like ourselves, as we're looking forward on innovating, we're clearly looking at innovating the next generation of ingredients that answer those asks. So when you think about clean label, a lot of our focus is on soluble fibers that have cleaner labeling, right? So Promitor, for example, uh, labels a soluble corn fiber, a soluble maize fiber. Maybe not all of us have it in the kitchen cupboard. I do. But, um, but you know, it's perhaps a little bit more familiar than something like polydextrose. When we think about sweetening, big focus on natural flavors. And so, again, familiar labeling. But I take an example of one of our... Um, recent innovations in starch where we've expanded um, our clean label clarier functional native starch range with a sustainability value proposition. So you know, we're very much looking at how we can make the next generation of these ingredients provide the functionality, the taste, the 
the, you know, the formulation objectives while also touching on those things like clean label uh, or cleaner label, sustainability, environmental footprint, uh, et cetera, because these, these conversations are becoming more and more important. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, clean label is this industry term um, that's used so much, but on the, from the consumer side, they might not know what that, what that term means. We spend so much time thinking about this. Um, and I'd like to touch on kind of the marketing, I suppose, of these kind of products. We're talking about HFSS or, or junk food. And being HFSS compliant, it's not a particularly sexy term. I'm wondering how can brands really market themselves as, as being healthier, potentially reformulated, um, and stand out on shelf? Flora, you might have insights on this. How can... How can HFSS compliant be sexy? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as you said, and as I said earlier, consumers don't know what HFSS is, so it's no point putting HFSS compliant on the product. <laughs> Although it is quite useful, actually, if you put it on the boxes that all your products come in, because then retailers really easily know if your product mm-hmm. is or isn't, and they know where they can and can't put it um, in their stores. But from a con- consumer um, aspect, as I was saying all earlier, it's all about what they're getting from the product. So if you went back sort of 15, 20 years consumer trends were all around sort of low calories and that's very much because particularly for women we had these magazines telling us we need to be really thin we then um, sort of wellness emerged and everybody started going to the gym and then there started being an increased demand for protein and of course we then started to see protein appear and high protein and everything so you need to think about what are the lifestyle trends of consumers at the moment Um, that's going to resonate with them. So we've obviously recently come out a global health pandemic. So at the moment, it's things like immunity boosting that's really resonating with consumers, you know, things like turmeric, ginger, all being really good for that. And also, again, coming out of lockdown, anything to help with things like anxiety, as well as something else that consumers are looking for. So CBD, for example, is doing really, really well at the moment. Um, So thinking about the wider macro lifestyle trends and then what ingredients you can use to almost help promote that is probably going to be the marketing and even the ingredient strategy that's going to be the most successful or sexy. (laughs) Cathy, that sounds like something that you're working with, with gut health. Yeah, Uh, yeah. so gut health is um, (laughs) is on everybody's um, lips now, which is great because the the more we talk about it, the more we discuss it, the more people will be, the consumer becomes aware and I think awareness is probably the strongest thing that needs to really change. The biggest thing that we need to see change and obviously informing the customer. I think there's a little bit of, I call it health washing on the labelling. And um, I think, you know, I'm kind of much more about the fact that, you know, being healthy is quite sexy, I think, in, in the sense that Instagram's full of healthy looking, lovely, sexy people. And I think, you know, everyone aspires to be looking, being, feeling healthier. So I think one of the best things is that if you've got an ethos and you are, that's what you are, you can promote that. I think the difficulty that there comes in terms of like, yeah, I don't think most average consumer knows what HFSS is. More maybe really cares. Um, if they, but I think what is really important is I think it doesn't help big guys when you're trying to then promote that you're now HFSS because you've reformulated. Well, why do you need to reformulate? What were you feeding us before? Doesn't seem so as great to then say that you've changed. So I think that's that consumer honesty and trust to from the brand that they're buying from. But um, I definitely think that there's um, a lot to be said about going forward about giving clean labelling in terms of kind of being actually 
we do it at Boundless by we tell people about the benefits of what they're getting from our packaging. So we talk about the fact that it's full of gut-friendly fibre. We talk about the fact that we're packed in nutrients, you know, zinc, magnesium, calcium, potassium, all the things in the UK that we're lacking. Certainly fibre being one of the greatest things that we have a problem with in the UK. But I think that's what pe- that's what a consumer wants, the benefit. They want to know that, yes, of course, it's tasty. Yes, of course, it's been affordable. But the ultimate thing is they want to know now what they what that benefit is for them. And certainly as we move further to more in generational eating in terms of like Gen Z eats snacks more than any other generation before, yet they are more informed than we have ever been about nutrition and benefits and things because they spend their time or have been allowed to be on the internet far more than any of us. And therefore they are really heavily informed and in terms of what makes, therefore, advertising sexy, I think is beneficial. What does this do for me? Because I think that's what people want, in, as you've talked about, being time constraints and all of these things. Everyone wants a really fast, quick, so something solved and definitely immune system in terms of where we are with gut. Mental health, of course, is massively, you know, your gut is completely linked to your brain and how your mental health is, but benefit. And I think that is actually quite sexy. Benefits. (laughs) And if I could maybe just build on that slightly, my brain was worrying as I was listening. Um, I think there's a real conversation to be had about trial. Because I think, you know, often awareness of these products is lower than the mainstream. They're not often in a retail environment easy to find and the shelves are busy. And, and people are busy. People are busy. And if you put a little HFSS tick, you know, nobody's paying attention. Um, I had an interesting conversation with someone from Ocado a couple of weeks ago about how you can use digital platforms to set up a choice framework for consumers. And, you know, you can think about how you can do that in retail. The traditional result, somebody standing there with a can to give it to you as you go out the door at Waterloo Station. But, um, you know, consumers often quite like these things when they try them, but often they don't try them. And so, you know, if you can, if you, you know, that education and awareness and all of that sort of stuff, the health health benefits, et cetera, all of that's great to drive repeat purchase and keep consumers buying them because they know now it's better for me, et cetera. But my, my kind of anecdotal experience is that kind of overcoming that initial trial barrier is often really, really hard. But once you crack it, I mean, I was in a supermarket the other day and I just ripped open a couple of chocolate bars and got chased down by security. But I was <laughs> giving a consumer, a, you know, the Mondelez 30% sugar reduced in a taste test versus the standard reference. And before she tried it, she just said, no way, I don't want to, I'm not interested. And then actually in the blind taste test, she said she preferred it. Um, so, you know, yes, you might be able to pick out slight differences in a back-to-back test, but actually, you know, I think once consumers have tried it, you can then pile in with all of the reasons to believe why it's better for them to drive repeat purchase. But I think you, you've, got to get, you've got to overcome that trial, but you've got to have that portfolio to offer in the first place to mm-hmm. be able to do that. I think as well, sort of by overcoming that trial, the most important thing there is to lead on taste and flavour. Yeah. That should almost be the priority thing with your marketing is this is a really great, delicious product. Oh, and look at all these amazing health benefits it has as well. And you're going to suddenly start to appeal to so many more consumers. Mm. 
mm, that taste would still be king, that there are added benefits. Susan, how are you approaching this, um, I guess, trial and then, I mean, there's no repeat purchase without a trial, right? And um, are you using health benefits to, to get people to make that first purchase? Yeah, I mean, we recently reformulated the um, recipe to improve the health benefits uh, more so they uh, support gut health. So we've... Uh, we, we put an inulin powder, which is a certified prebiotic at the right level. Um, we um, use chickpea flour. So we've, we're using chickpeas, which is a good source of protein. And because we're so loaded with seeds, we, we've also managed to claim omega-3s and magnesium. Uh, so we have all those benefits. Um, so... And interestingly, um, I've been, a lot of retailers now are also saying uh, that they're looking at women's wellness and health and menopause. Um, and it's been uh, shown that, that products targeted for women pre- and post-menopause uh, can be very successful. So Boots recently had a trial where they uh, had an aisle of uh, menopause products and in store they saw a rise of 20% on the sale of those products. So they're looking to roll out more uh, products very focused on women's health. Um, and I think Holland and Barrett have also... Uh, identified gut health and women's wellness and menopause as two of their pillars for the next 12 months. We're going to be talking about menopause on, on day three. So yes. That you that <laughs> yeah, Heather will be talking about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you, Paul, for these added health benefits, do we think that consumers are willing to pay more? Price and affordability has been a big topic during this discussion. So, Flora, can I ask you this question? Are consumers willing to pay more? Well, I think there's a bit of an expectation that when you've got all of these added health benefits, you know, you are paying for a little bit more. And um, as I said earlier, some of the most health-led conscious shoppers are those on the highest income, so they are willing to pay a bit more. But I think for the masses, it's not about whether you're willing, it's whether you can and whether you've got the affordability. So I'm sure everybody would be willing if they had, you know, £100,000 salaries, but sadly not everyone is. And I think it is probably more the government's responsibility to try and make those um, easy, uh, low-cost, um, healthy options more available to, to um, consumers. Mm -hmm. um, to wrap up this panel, I'd like to ask you all, really, what you think that healthy could look like or, or should look like and, and how stakeholders at, at various different levels can, I guess, collaborate um, to meet changing consumer demand what what do you think needs to happen here I'll start with you Cathy um well I think um like I said probably going back to kind of like the health washing mm. I think we need to be a little bit more concise about what we're saying to the consumer and giving them an awareness because we've gone through a lot of stage where less means more so 40 percent less fat 30 percent less sugar evidently means more but doesn't really mean that does it what does it mean is it really healthier for you or not I think we're kind of still making people feel 
not that much as informed as they could be. So I think information is really important. I think from startup point of view, I think the more investors that kind of invest in startups that are willing to change the um, food kind of concept land that we're going to see further along the might, uh, further along the way, with how snacking and certainly obviously that's the innovation part. I mean, snacking is is changing. I think it's interesting to hear from, like we said, from PepsiCo earlier in terms of what they're looking to do by 2025 by 50% reformulating into less than 100 calories or HFSS compliant. I think that is. I think that says where snacking is going where the category is going as a whole um, they don't build bigger aisles they're not going to build bigger stores there are obviously you know only going to be so much shelf space and I think it's really exciting to think that the predominantly is going to be pushed towards being healthier how healthier it will be I mean one of my big things is multidextrin which I absolutely hate and I'm afraid it's used more and more and more in lots of products. I'd really love you to leave here. If the one thing you left from me today was that you went home and you started to look at the back of your pack and started to see what multidextrin in, and multidextrin is being used so much more now in order to um, obviously assist with HFSS compliancy. Um, but it's one of the biggest gut irritators there is out there. It can spike your GI. And um, I actually think we're going to have long-term problems with multidextrin being in our food. So, um, yeah, if we can get get rid of that, that would be brilliant. But like I said, I think I started off by saying I'm really excited for where food is going. Mm-hmm. I am so enthused for the generations that sit, the millennial and Gen Z that sit behind us also. You know, I wish I'd been as informed as them mm-hmm. in my late teens, early 20s, early 30s. I would that be amazing. And I think the pressure is going to be on for us in the food industry to come up with what the consumer really needs and wants. And I think we're going to be really held accountable. And I think that's really interesting. And I think that's going to be exciting. Great. So, keep. is there something that you're excited about for the future? What do you think you'd like to see? Would you like more stakeholder engagement? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think for me, I'll come back to where I started, which is around, I'd love to be sitting here in 10 years' time seeing those obesity and uh, diabetes rates declining rather than increasing. I think that that really, for me, is <clears throat> the definition of success um, rather than focusing on a sugar-free, fat-free, fun-free biscuit. Because I, I, I do think consumers have a right to choice. Mm. Um, I don't think we should necessarily be nannying them. There is a role in indulgence and taste, etc., permissible indulgence, but that's where education plays an important part. Um, and, and I think the journey to get there is where I believe the kind of food and beverage in industry needs to work out how we can build an ecosystem to do it together. Because it's not just going to be Pepsi saying they're reducing their 50%. It's not just going to be the ingredients company. You know, everybody's going to have a role to play. And by everybody playing a role in that value chain... I think we won't have to have the discussion about affordability of nutrition because we'll make the ecosystem work such that the value chain works for everybody. Um, It's not going to be ingredient companies having to sell higher price ingredients and retailers having to absorb lower margins or whatever. You know, we've got to figure out how that ecosystem is going to work. And if we can do that, hopefully we'll be here seeing those statistics going in the other direction. 
Susan and Flora. Uh, I've got a very idealistic and, you know, kind of hopeful view that we will have a world which is not about guilt, guilty, about good food, bad food, not about dieting, and that we improve people's relationship with food so that they have a better understanding of food and what it can do with for them and the benefits that food can give them. And we that is my dream, to sort of change people's relationship with food. Um, and I think that will be a very positive step. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I think just almost encourage, I mean, what's the healthiest thing you can eat? Fruit and veg. And health is really all about balance. The more we can always encourage shoppers and consumers to eat more local, seasonal, seasonal, sustainable fruit and veg and kind of incorporate them into their diet more, the more scope there is and that we can have a chocolate bar guilt-free all the time because you've got that balance in your life. Um, but it is still about giving consumers that choice and making sure they have the right choices that are accessible, that are affordable to them. Thanks for that. I see we've run slightly over, so let's, let's leave it there. Thank you very much to my panellists. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 